Okay. Do we have the uh, CD recording device going? Good. Computer's going. January 24, 2010, lecture discussion number 10 on Zechariah 11, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Revelation 13, Revelation 17, John 12, Matthew 12, and Matthew 27. And that's where we are again today, and we'll be there for a while. Once again, let me point out that all those aforementioned chapters that I just ran through all have Zechariah 11 as the centerpiece. Everything revolves around Zechariah 11. That's why Zechariah 11 is so important to you. That is, as you know, the prophecy, the great prophecy of the good shepherd and the wicked shepherd, that confrontation prophecy that is there. So uh, that is, in my view, if you're going to, uh, after you get out of Genesis... Raise it up. After you get out of Genesis, go to Zechariah 11. Is that better? Test one, two, test one, two, test. Raise it up. It'll work some, Pat. If I step away from the podium, at least it'll work. Okay. But again, if you're going to pick something in the Old Testament, man, spend some time in Zechariah 11 so that you get that, you get that done as best you can. That is so important. It explains so many things in the New Testament that are much uh, more controversial with regard, especially uh, Matthew 27 and Matthew 12. And those are two of the places where people do not understand their Bible. They think Matthew 12 is, is, they don't understand it's a national sin of Israel. It is the blasphemy or the unpardonable sin, and they believe that it's something you can do individually and you cannot do it individually. It is for the nation of Israel. You cannot commit the unpardonable sin. That is, a, as I said, a national sin of Israel with God in front of them in uh, having added humanity, and they reject him on the basis that he is Satan and not God. So that scripture cleans up when you understand Zechariah 11. So does uh, Matthew 27, as you know, that is Judas throwing the silver at the potter. So does Revelation 17, which we're going to get here to in a minute. The uh, the beast that was and is not and and uh, will come out of the abyss and go to perdition. And again, let me emphasize, as, as important as Zechariah 11 is, it's more correct, if you will, to say that everything revolves around Genesis 3.15. Because Genesis 3.15 is underneath literally all of Scripture. There is no Scripture where it is not. And Genesis 3.15, of course, is being the seed of the woman, um, being bruised or wounded by the seed of the serpent. Or said another way, the, as I said, the wounding of Jesus Christ. And we've had this discussion many times. How do you wound God? How do you hurt God? Do not think of it as a physical effect. He is a what? He is a spirit. He's a metaphysical being primarily. Now, he adds on physical humanity, but how do you wound physically a immortal, infinite, omnipresent, omnipotent spirit being God? How do you wound him? So don't think of it as a physical uh, consequence, because it's not. 
Also as well in Genesis 3.15 is the crushing of the head of the seed of the serpent by the seed of the woman. So you have Christ uh, crushing the head or bruising the head, uh, inflicting a fatal blow to the Antichrist, if you will. And that, that causes an equally obvious question, no less difficult, no less complex. How and when and where exactly is a fatal blow delivered to the Antichrist by Christ? Now, that may seem simple to you. Most will rush right to Revelation. But I want you to, uh, I'll submit to you that fatal as God defines it is far different than what we define. When I say somebody is wounded fatally, what do we immediately think? They're dead physically. Now, does the Antichrist have concern about, does Satan have concern? How do I, how do I launch, if you will, a fatal blow to Satan? I don't believe the killing of the physical body is feared by Satan. In fact, it's not to be feared by us, Matthew 10:27 through 31. Don't fear the death of the physical. Don't fear those who kill the body. Fear those, fear him who is able to send the soul into destruction. So, I think that gives you a real good head start on what bruise your head or what a fatal wound is to Satan. The defeat of the Antichrist, the fatal blow of the Antichrist, the defeat of the Antichrist and Satan. Really, your choices are Matthew 4, Revelation 19 and 20, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, Revelation 12, Revelation 13, 8, and then the 4, it is finished. Now, I rattled those all off really fast, but Revelation 4 is what? That is the confrontation of Satan and Christ in the wilderness with the angelic host witnessing the solution to sin being given by Christ to Satan and the angelic host, that is a fatal blow. There's no question about that. The crucifixion, the resurrection, and his ascension, also fatal blows. Casting the Antichrist into the lake of fire, or killing him physically, Revelation 19, I don't believe is a fatal blow. I submit that fatal means something far more than what we think. Casting him into the, into the lake of fire in Revelation 20 precedes the final uh, act of Satan, the Magog-Gog, the final Magog-Gog of Satan, where, he, where he's released from the abyss and, and again attacks God. So, you have to, you're, like I said, your choices are, really... Before it is finished, Matthew 4, Revelation 13, 8. You can make a case for Revelation 12, if you will. But again, Satan still operates after he is cast down from heaven. What is Revelation 13, 8? Revelation 13, 8 is where it declares that the slain of the Lamb, the sacrifice of Christ, was before the foundation of the world, which means it predates time. Is that the fatal blow to Satan? If not, that doesn't make any sense to you, don't worry. Uh, uh, it will eventually, I hope. I bring all of this up once again because we're about to head into the great mystery of uh, John, John 12. We're about to head into that great mystery of John 12 today, I hope. And that uh, is the first recorded words of Judas, as you hopefully know by now. That is where Judas protests the anointing oil. That is where Judas is identified as the one with the money box. 
That is where Christ says, I have lost none except for the son of perdition. And he identifies Judas with a name that is only given to the Antichrist in Thessalonians by Paul. The Antichrist is called the son of perdition. Only he and Judas have that title, which begs the obvious question, doesn't it? Which is what? If they have the same name, are they the same person? And if they are, how is it that Judas is the Antichrist? So that becomes obvious, and that becomes the question we have to deal with when we get to John 12. And as I said, the I have lost none of John 17:12. So all of that is where we're headed today. And as you should expect, John 12 is a very deep, very complex, Zechariah 11-centered passage. And thus, it's a Genesis 3:15 passage as well. And it's central to understanding the eighth mystery. And the eighth mystery is the mystery of the man of sin. So we're going to take all of that on today, and we shall, at the least, ask the obvious questions that explode out of John 12. There's 15 of them right off the top of your head, and hopefully we'll answer one or two of them. I wrote that. um, I said maybe we'll answer one or two of them today, and then I wrote over here, maybe not. Well, we're not, because we had a problem last week. Unfortunately, we had a technical glitch last Sunday which resulted in all of the January 17, 2010 sermon to be lost. Which means there's no CD, no computer record, no iTunes, no Podbean, Bean or whatever it is, no rapid share. So all of that which we send out to those people who have been very uh, faithful in supporting us. Um, and I know you are the most holy. That's pretty obvious. There's no question about that today. We'll really, really, really find out who is the holy uh, on Super Bowl Sunday. And again, for those of you who might have missed the uh, the announcements, uh, we announced that, or I announced that the Cliffside concession uh, to Super Bowl sermon. So we will concede to the Super Bowl that sermon or that uh, that church service will start at one o'clock on. Uh, on Sunday, February 7th, 1 o'clock, which I promise that I'll only take about two, two and a half hours. There'll be a short one-hour business meeting afterward, and then you can all dive out of here and run home to see who, by the way, is going to play in the Super Bowl. You always want me to tell you. And I know, of course, already that uh, Peyton Manning is going to play in the Super Bowl, and therefore it really doesn't matter who else is playing. So those of you who are rooting for New Orleans or those of you who are rooting for Minnesota, um, you're, you might as well come to church because I will be right. And I'll give you the score next week. And so you'll know the score and you'll know the winner. And it'll be really easy for you to come to church on that day. And how many times have I been wrong over the last 10 years? Do you know? Twice. That was one of the times. I am 80%. So there's an 80% chance that I'll ruin your Sunday. Which is not bad. And of course, there was the one year where I, I got the score right. I'll never forget that year. I should have quit right then. But anyway, we lost the, the uh, sermon last week. And that is a shame, mainly because... 
We poured a lot of concrete last Sunday. We put in a lot of foundation. I read Daniel 2. I brought up George Berkeley. I brought up physical reality is mind dependent, which is a, 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 a principle that Berkeley proposed in the uh, early 1700s. He said that matter must be perceived in order to exist. And we did all of that last week. And the importance of intentionality, which is free will, of course. You have to have an understanding of free will when you bring it to the discussion of the existence of your immortal soul, of our immortal soul, because free will is one of the one of the areas that we fight over. If you if you want to put it that way, it is a it is a hill to die on. So you have to know how it fits into the discussion. Our immortal soul is unaffected by physical death and intentionality and free will proves that to the physicalist or the materialist. The atheist, they conclude that there is no purpose to anything. There isn't any purpose to them. The, the universe is purposeless. It's meaningless. It's got, it's chaotic. And we humanity, therefore, are part of the universe. And we, therefore, have no purpose. We are merely, as you've heard me say thousands of times, they believe, monistic, only physical. And we cease to exist when we die, when our physical process ends. And we are thus subject to random events and processes. For example, this Haiti earthquake to them is a random, chaotic, meaningless, purposeless event that is just luck. It has nothing to do with intentionality. It has nothing to do with the fall of man. It has nothing to do with sin. It has nothing to do with free will. It has nothing to do with building sod houses on an earthquake fault. There is no intentionality. It is all random. So if there's an evil act, it is a random evil act. If there's a good act, it, there is no good. In fact, to them, reason, uh, uh, I'm sorry, free will, choice, good, evil, those are absurd, irrational concepts and suppositions. And that pretty much sums up the contemporary evolutionary atheist. And obviously such thinking is what we call fatalistic. Because if you believe that, what are you doing? You end up, you end up in fatalism philosophically. Hopelessness. And the Bible is absolutely opposed. God's Bible absolutely opposed to that. And that's why last week I began to get into intentionality and George Berkeley matter is mind dependent and perceived. If it does, if it isn't perceived by some intelligent intentional being, it matter is non-existent. And to, in other words, matter is an idea. Someone must think of matter for matter to exist. And you can see how he headed towards God with that and proved the existence of God and proved the existence of your immortal soul. And that's why it's so important. That's why we're going to do it. And I intended to advance the discourse today. And I wanted to add in the logical fallacy of the who made God question. Because uh, if I got a question throughout my preaching career from teenagers and from college students, it's usually who made God? In one form or another, it's the rock, can he make a rock question. It's all the same thing. Who made God? And so I have to deal with that all the time. <clears throat> and so we'll deal with it together now so that you'll have it. As you know, alongside of the who made God question is always the other question that I gave you a few weeks ago. The absence of evidence is evidence of absence argument. They're, they're together. So they will say to you that if there is no evidence for something, then it doesn't exist. 
The absence of evidence is evidence of absence. If, if man cannot find evidence of it, then it is unfounded. Man cannot find evidence, they say, of what? Of your immortal soul or what? God. So therefore, if there is no evidence of God, as far as they can tell, and there is no evidence of your immortal soul, then there is no God and there is no immortal soul. The absence of evidence is evidence of absence. And then the other one, as I said, that goes alongside of it all the time is the who made God question. So we need to we need to evaluate. It's worthwhile to us to evaluate the merits of both of those together. Since, as I said, they're a two pronged attack against us traditional dualists. And they are, by the way, the people that bring them to me are just so positive. They're unanswerable. They're so positive. Ooh, I am going to defeat the old man with the funny glasses. I'm going to get rid of him. These are my new glasses, by the way. Uh, I had the other glasses, and I found out that they were, had a coating on them that made them smudge all the time. And I didn't like that. And they scratched really easy. And I didn't like that. These do this. It's really cool. Yeah. Now, that's perfect for me. The glasses will break. Because it's glass, duh. But you can make pretzels out of them. I'm scared to do it. Isn't that cool? But they look hideous. And I like that too. So all in all, it's a big win for me. I have, I have more attractive ones coming. These are my ugly glasses. But people will come to me all the time and they'll say, look, this is unanswerable. The ugly guy with the funny glasses cannot possibly answer these two questions. And it just frustrates me because they should know better. If they bother you, if you cannot handle the evidence of absence, I'm sorry, the, the absence of evidence is evidence of absence. And if you cannot handle the who made God question, you're only five minutes away. They're that easy. And why they win is really frustrating. They should be literally laughed off the stage. And they are in most places, but you would never know that with our popular culture. See, the evidence or the absence of evidence is evidence of absence presupposes that human senses, as I said a couple of weeks ago, are able to experience and therefore find, locate, observe or confirm everything. In other words, I am the one who decides whether or not it is what evidence. I if I can't find it, then it doesn't exist. That kind of logic is just plain silly. If we don't, if humanity doesn't find evidence of something, then it's non-existent. That's your view. If humanity can't feel it, touch it, see it, taste it, what's the other one? Hear it. Then it doesn't exist. That's the, that's the position. That's the supposition. That's a silly argument, a silly notion. It's arrogance. And by the way, Heisenberg's quantum mechanics uncertainty principle of 1926 destroys it. So all you need to do is what? Understand Heisenberg, 1926, quantum mechanics. That's all you have to do. Or, if you wish, Berkeley. The who made God question, the next question from the atheist after he asks the who made man question. See, that's what he does. He comes to you and what? He says what? Who made man? And what do we say all the time? God made man. And what does he say back? Who made God? So it becomes the who made God question. And the theist uh, always walks away from that as if he can't deal with it. That also presupposes something, doesn't it? 
What does it presuppose? If the first one presupposes that you are the arbiter of all things that exist, your ability to sense them. I have a dog. I prove the other one is wrong with a dog. Because the dog can sense things I can't sense. The dog knows things I don't know. It's really obvious when you own a dog. Much of the time, the dog is a lot smarter than us. That's why the old adage, if you're going to train dogs, first thing, what? you got to be smarter than the dog. And that's a big problem for a lot of us. It is obvious to me that my senses are very limited. And if I'm going to rely on my senses for the evidence of existence of something, then I'm in a lot of trouble right off the bat. So just logically or just humanly, just... Uh, Apocryphally, from an apocryphal standpoint, it is clear that that one, is, that one has no value. Well, the second one, who made God, presupposes something as well. What does it presuppose? That God is what? A creation. That God is created. And it's not a clever question. To the contrary, it's a nonsense question. And it, at its core, it's illogical. It's illogical because what is the definition of God? What is the Bible? John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before time, if you will, God. All things, including time, because what's time? It's a thing. All things were made through Him, and without Him there was nothing that was made that was made. That's John 1. God is defined as what? The creator of time, the uncreated creator of time. That's how God's defined. So, you're, so the who made God question becomes silly, doesn't it? Jesus Christ, God, is the uncreated creator of time. So the, as I said, the who made God is a gibberish question. Let me rephrase it for you. The question really is this. It's equivalent to this. Who created the uncreated creator of time? That's their question. It contradicts itself. Who created the uncreated it's just pure gibberish. It's not a valid question. Don't be afraid of either one of those. It takes no time at all to destroy them. They've been destroyed for centuries, but yet we would never know it. Now, the evolutionary atheism is also quite fond of saying or answering their own question, by the way, the who made God question. They know that, that if you answer it and you know anything, they're in trouble. So they answer it themselves all the time with an equally unintelligible Challenge. They say this, that we human beings imagine God. That's very popular today. It's all in all the God delusion and God is not great books. The human beings imagine God and therefore man did what? Man is the what? The maker of God. Now, you should recognize that for what it is. Carried to its logical conclusion, God was made from what? Man's imagination. What's that? Where does man's imagination come from? See, to its logical conclusion, you'll see that they'll say God was made from nothing because they have man going where? Man ceases to exist and becomes nothing. So God was made from what? Nothing. That's the exact opposite of Genesis 1, isn't it? And that's quite predictable if one considers the ultimate source of all of this. Now, I intended to delve further into these and the others this morning, but it's necessary to go back over Daniel 2 for, to kind of clean up this mess that has been lost into the abyss that we call 
computers. So we're going to back the bus up for those who follow along on the Internet or those who are dependent of the, on the United States Postal Service. I can't reread Annual 2 today. I've kind of put it on the board. Doesn't it look better than normal? Hey, there it is. And we're going to go through it. Maybe it will help you if it's been confusing you. And quite a few of you have come to me to ask me, how can he be the eighth horn and the eleventh head? If I ask, or I'm sorry, how can he be the eleventh horn and the eighth horn simultaneously speaking about the Antichrist? If, if I asked you all right now, how many of you go ahead and raise your hands? That's a trick, isn't it? Never raise your hand here. But I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you are confident that you can explain how it is that the Antichrist is the eleventh horn and the eighth horn? Okay? How many of you are confident that you can explain the seven heads of Revelation 17 and Revelation 13? Okay? So, if you can't, then I'm going to, get, I'm going to catch you up today. Today, every one of you here will understand all of that. And then what do you do with it? You run out and tell somebody before you forget it. And if you're over 50, that means you have a half hour. And you better tell everybody at the buffet what you know. And don't feel bad. Every now and then I come to one of these books because I always go back over the same books um, and I'm confident that I've never read the book before until I open it. And then I find out that it's completely uh, notated and it's all cut up. And I've argued with it. In fact, I've even gotten angry at him. This guy's an idiot. And it's in there. So I, uh, I cannot remember what I have read now. And that's a very sad thing for my wife. Because there's other things that I can't remember. Plus, it gives me a wonderful excuse, by the way. I'm working on that. No time to reread Daniel 2. So, two things are critical. Two things are critical. Daniel 2 plus Daniel 7 plus Revelation 13 plus Revelation 17 equals 1. What I mean by that is that Daniel 7, Daniel 2, sorry, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Revelation 13, Revelation 17 are all parts. They're four parts to a whole. And if you're going to understand any of them, you have to have four parts. Otherwise, you're the guy with the elephant. You know the guy with the elephant thing, right? The blind guys and the elephant. One blind guy's got a hold of the tail and he describes the elephant as a snake. The other one's got a rope and the other one's got the trunk and he says it's a snake and some have the tusk and and some have the feet, and some have the side, and they all have a different opinion of what the elephant is. That's what you're going to have if you don't put all the pieces together. You must have them side by side. You've literally got to read them right next to each other in order to understand any of them. And if you don't do that, big wampum, uh, heapum problems. And you're not going to get through it. And that's a mistake, by the way, constantly made. People do not find the Old Testament complement to the New Testament exposition. Okay, 
Secondly, after you've done that, you have to know the whole context of all of those. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Revelation 13, Revelation 17. The context, especially established by Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, is what? You've got to know what it is you're trying to figure out. When you read Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 specifically, especially first, what is it that they're talking about? What are you trying to figure out? Do you know? You can answer back. There's, there's only a few of you here. You're trying to figure out the end of something. The end of what? You're trying to figure out the end of the time of the Gentiles. Do you understand Daniel? What's Daniel? Who's Daniel? He's a what? He's a Jew. He was, what kind of Jew was he? He was in the kingdom. He was in the palace. He's a palace Jew. Okay? What did Nebuchadnezzar do when he got all the palace Jews and kept them alive? What did the first thing he do to them? Because the royalty. What's the first thing he does to them? Do you know? He castrates them. Because he wants no royal line. Kingdoms are a royal line, right? He has them in captivity. And what has happened to Jerusalem? Jerusalem has been destroyed. Literally tore to pieces. How about the Solomonic Temple? What's left of it? Nothing. Wiped out. And so there's Daniel. What does he want to know? What's he want to know? When does the Babylonian captivity end? That's what he wants to know. He finds out that it's the times of the Gentiles. It starts in 586, right? 586. I'm kind of going off of the... Uh, off of the script here, and I don't really want to do that because I'll lose track for the other folks. And I want to make sure I cover critical stuff that you already heard last week. But it starts in 586 B.C. How long does it last, these times of the Gentiles? Daniel thought it was going to last how long? Was hoping it was going to last how long? Maybe his lifetime. In his lifetime, what would happen? What was he hoping for? He would go back to Jerusalem, the palace would be rebuilt, the temple would rebuilt, be rebuilt, and Israel would go back to doing what? Being the nation of God. Because they clearly were not the nation of God when they were taken into captivity. So that's what this is about. You have to know that first it's a four-part addition problem, but at least it's addition, you know, it's not algebra. There's no imaginary numbers, there's no dividing the square root of a negative number there. It's just addition. We can do that. And then the other thing you have to know is that it's about the end of the time of the Gentiles. It's in that context. This prophecy is specific to the four empires of the times of the Gentiles, beginning with Babylon and ending with the Roman Gentile Empire. So the order is, as you have heard me say, especially last week, I have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. So it's about those four empires. Those are the four Gentile empires that Daniel was dealing with. Why is he dealing with those? Are there other Gentile um, empires that you would have that you would like to throw in? Would you like to throw in the Chinese empire or, hey, the American empire? Would like to throw them in? How come the Bible doesn't deal with any other Gentile empires in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Revelation 13, Revelation 17? How come the Bible doesn't even seem to recognize any other empires? It only says these four. 
What are so what are so unique about these four? And by the way, I know it's difficult to conceive this, but we are still in the Roman Empire. It's hard to understand that, but it's nonetheless the case, and you will understand. When I speak of the four Gentile empires, you've got to remember that God is using Daniel, as I said, a Jewish prophet, to write this. And Daniel purpose, or personally, <coughs> excuse me, personally witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem. He personally saw the destruction of the Solomonic Temple by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar. The Jews were in captivity. Most of them were massacred. Most of them were slaughtered. It's a miracle anyone was, was kept alive by Nebuchadnezzar. This was a total, complete, cataclysmic event, a disaster. All the Jews were in shock. Why were all the Jews in shock that the Babylonian army came in and slaughtered them? Why were they in shock? Were the Babylons more, were more of them? More Babylons? Babylonians? Sorry. Yeah, a lot more. They had better weapons? Yeah, a lot better weapons. How come the Jews were shocked that the Babylonians came in and slaughtered them, tore down their temple, hauled them away, castrated their royalty? Yes, God was supposed to what? Protect them. Why didn't God protect them? Yeah, read the story. They had completely rejected God. They had failed to do. What did God tell them to do? What did he want them to do? He wanted them to go out into the Gentile nations and do what? Tell the truth about who he was so that what could happen for the Gentile? So the Gentiles could be saved. What did the Jews do? They hated the Gentiles. We're not going to do that. So what did God do? You got two choices, by the way. You can make the application for those of you who think I don't do application sermon. You can either go witness for God or he will what? What did you say? Castrate you? <laughs> That's a little further than the application that I intended. But that gets the point. You can either go out and witness for God or he will do what? He will drag you out there. There's your choices. Once you have been given the truth of who he is, you have a responsibility. And if you don't do it, then what? Read what he says. You have a responsibility. We all do. Do something. There are consequences if we don't. He's not going to let you just sit back on the sidelines, go to church, relax. He's not going to let you do it. He's going to make you get out there and get in a fight. So anyway, the Jews were in shock. They were in despair. God threw them out. He dispersed them, by the way, after the Roman Empire, didn't he? Dispersed them all over the world. And what are they doing? They are testifying about God all over the world. Are they doing it in a good way in the sense that do they know that Christ is God? No, they're testifying that they don't know that Christ is God. But they're doing what? Testifying, witnessing, even though it's a negative. Eventually, what will they do in the tribulation? They'll testify that Christ is God and they'll be the greatest testimony of all of mankind. But that's... To, for them to come. Right now, they're testifying the negative. The fact that the Jews still exist is proof that you are an immortal being, by the way. But they're in shock and they're in despair and they're asking this question. When will God come and restore his nation of Israel? That was the cry and the question of every living Jew, especially Daniel. And God responds to this question, this cry of Israel, this 
need to know. And he gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream in Daniel 2. And this is the dream of the image. And by the way, image is so important, isn't it? Because the Antichrist, Judas, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. The Antichrist builds an image. You have to understand what image means. It's representative. Let me give you a clue. You are representing God. Every time you kick your dog, you're representing God. That dog knows who God is. Every time you do something wicked on this earth, you are representing God. Know that. Satan knows that. That's what this image stuff comes from. Nebuchadnezzar has his dream of this image. And Daniel is given the wisdom to interpret its meaning. So that's how God deals with this. Plus, he gets to save the Babylonian astrologers at the same time because the Babylonian astrologers, Nebuchadnezzar comes to them and says, I want you to interpret my dream. It's a great story if you haven't read it. And they all go, sure, King Nebuchadnezzar, give us the dream. And he says, I want you to interpret. I'm adding Chronister's little theatrical interpretation here. He says to him, I want you to interpret the dream. And if you don't interpret the dream, I'm going to kill every single one of you in a horrible way. You won't like it. And they said, not a problem, King. Give us the dream and we'll interpret it for you because we are the astrologers and we know all things and we're brilliantly clever little con men. And we're going to fool you again. We've been fooling you for a long time and we got good food and things are going our way. He said, I ain't giving you the dream this time, guys. So you're going to interpret the dream without knowing what the dream is. And if you don't get both of them right, you're all dead. Bad day for the astrologers. And so what did they do? They knew they were dead. They were dead. What are they going to do? What's their only hope? Go get the Jewish castrated guy. Let's see if he can do it. And he can what? He can do it because it's about... The times of the Gentiles and the Jewish captivity or the Jewish dispersion. And because he saves every single astrologer, what do they all do? What does every single astrologer do? They all become Daniel guys. They all start working for Daniel. He's in charge of them and they all, they all love Daniel. And not only do they love Daniel, but who else loves Daniel? All their kids love Daniel. Everybody loves Daniel. And Daniel has the court of Daniel. He teaches them about the truth of the Shekinah glory. And they all come when the Shekinah glory comes to announce the incarnation, the mystery of the incarnation, or what we would call the birth of Christ. But they come to see the holy thing. And they come, of course, in September or October because they know. Daniel taught them. That's why they came. That was a side advantage. But anyway, God's answer is this to Nebuchadnezzar's image. There's four Gentiles empires. And the reason that there's only four is because these four have something in common. What do they have in common? They have all dominated Jerusalem. That's what they have in common. So that's how God scores things. You are a Gentile empire if you dominate Jerusalem. The Gentiles dominate. By the way, are the Gentiles dominating Jerusalem right now? Yeah. Half of it's what? Philistine. Yeah. Half of it's controlled by the Philistines. Now, you might say Palestinian, but that's the Roman word for Philistine. So we're still 
dominating. And who put the who put the uh, the Philistines in charge of half of Jerusalem? The Romans did. So that's all about. Anyway, God's answer is there's four Gentile empires and that that will dominate Jerusalem, and they are in this order. They're in descending order of value, but increasing order of strength. First one is gold, uh, Babylon. The second one is silver, Medo-Persia. The third one is brass, Hellenistic Greece, if you will, just Greece. And the fourth one is iron, Roman. So you see, they descend in value, but they increase in strength, and that's an important thing. We'll get to that next week. But then there will be a fifth empire. Finally, the time of the Gentiles will end when the Jewish empire comes, and that is the stone. The stone, the fifth empire, will be Jewish. So what we're talking about is the time of the Gentile domination of Israel, and that will be four empires long. And we know from history what they were, as I'm saying. As I said last week, we have the advantage of looking back. And we saw, yes, Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute monarch. He had total control. He was outside the law. He was extremely powerful. And now we had, after him came Medo-Persia, and their monarchs were not as powerful. They weren't outside the law. They had a different system. Of course, Greece had a completely uh, less uh, powerful system. And then the fourth empire, Roman, was uh, pretty much a republic as it began. Now, so they descend in power in the sense of how they're controlled, but they ascend in power in the sense of their strength with regard to the rest of the world. So the first empire, gold equals Babylon, if you go back into Daniel 2. When you see gold in that image, that's Babylon. When you see silver, that is the second. History tells us that's Medo-Persia. That's the Medes and the Persians. By the way, who are the Persians today? Iran. They're Persians. This is brass, the Hellenistic or the Greeks, and here is iron. Now, he establishes that first. It's about four empires, and when the, when the age of the empires will be over and the Jews will have control of Jerusalem and Israel again, and they will have a king on the throne. So that's what this is about. Now, Daniel 2 then says that the Roman Empire will go through a bunch of stages. In fact, it says it'll go through three stages. Now, let me move this out of the way so that you can see. It'll go through three stages. Now, you can see that I have five stages there. How did I get five stages? Can everyone see the board, by the way? How do I? Why am I? It says three stages. Let me keep going. Daniel 2 presents three of the stages. The crushing stage, if you read it, are the united stage where the Roman Empire, the Iron Empire, will be the most powerful in the sense of how it grabs and controls the, uh, the rest of the uh, kingdoms around it. And that's where Roman power overwhelmed the known world. And then it would have the divided stage. So first, we would, Daniel 2 says, there will be a united stage and then a divided stage. And then followed by the ten horn stage, or the ten stage, I'm sorry, or what, what is called in Daniel 2, the partly strong, partly fragile stage, or the ten-toed stage. Toes, as in T-O-E-S, not toad, as in frog. It's not a frog, is it, really? It's just a... So Daniel gives us, Daniel 2 gives us A, B, and D. How come I got... A one-world devour stage and a little horn stage on there. Where did I get that? 
I added Daniel 7. That's correct. So Daniel 2 gives you three of the five stages. Daniel 2 gives you the other two stages. So by adding the two of them together, you get the five stages. You also get from Daniel 7, the United States and the four general stage of Hellenistic Greece. When Alexander the Great broke or, or died, and he was in his 30s, right? When he died, what happened to his empire? It divided into the four general states. Each general, and you can still today study how those, how the Hellenistic or the Alexandrian Empire broke apart into four generals and what each general controlled and why it was given to him. And so Daniel 7 tells you that Babylon is not just gold, but it's also a lion. I don't have time to write that down. Medo-Persia is a lopsided bear with three ribs in its mouth. Greece is a very fast leopard that had four wings on its back. That's the four general stage. And this Roman beast is undescribable. It's a beast that there is no animal that we can represent it as. So... You, by combining the two of them together, you can begin to get the total picture of what these four empires that dominate Jerusalem and dominate Israel are going to look like. So, as I said, we add in Daniel 7 and we get the corresponding lion, bear, leopard, and beast. And we see some significant details not in Daniel 2. This ten-toed stage or toes stage of partly mixed a partly strong, partly fragile that is in Daniel 2 is very mysterious, and next week we'll deal with that. The mixing of the strong and the fragile, it's a great mystery. Okay, the lion, Babylon, gold, had eagle's wings that were plucked off of it, and it was given a man's heart. The bear was lopsided, as I said, with three ribs in its mouth. The leopard had four wings and four heads. Again, the four general stage. I hope you can see that. The beast that devours the whole earth had ten horns and then another horn, a little horn, which plucks three of the ten horns by the roots. And so if it plucks three of the ten horns by the roots and it's the eleventh horn, how many horns do I now have? I have eight. Does that make sense to you? I have ten horns in the Roman Empire at some place, but then I have a little horn that rises up and does what to three horns? Kills them. So I got ten plus one minus three, eight. That solves why he is the eleventh horn and the eighth horn, Revelation 17. So we combine all of that and we conclude this. The gold lion that is Babylon... Nebuchadnezzar will be plucked, the wings plucked out of it, but it will stand as a man and be given a man's heart. That is a very mysterious thing because that does not seem to be about the nation of Babylon after that point. The man's heart standing as a man, the plucking, that seems to be specific to Nebuchadnezzar himself. Am I still coming through? Do I need to move back here? The silver bear, Medo-Persia, that's lopsided and has three ribs in its mouth, that tells you that the Medes and the Persians are not going to be equal, and they weren't. The Persians had control of the Medes, and so the Persian part of that empire was dominant. The Persians dominated the Medes, and together they eat three kingdoms, and we know which kingdoms that was, one of them, of course, being Egypt. 
And so make the case for Libya and we'll go to that, go through that next week. The brass leopard grease will break apart into four pieces, the four general stage. We know from history that that happened and where. And the iron beast Rome will have a little horn. It'll have a united stage. We get that from Daniel 2. It'll have a divided stage into two pieces. We get that from Daniel 2. It'll have a one world devour stage. It'll have a ten horn stage. And then it'll have a little horn stage. So that's our diagram right here. This is our diagram of Daniel 2 plus Daniel 7. Got that? Pretty simple, right? Not so bad. Now, over here must be what? Must be Revelation 13 and Revelation 17 added to Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. So, and that it is. The little horn, as you know, is who? Is who? That's the Antichrist, the little horn that comes after the ten horn stage, after the one world devour stage, after the divided stage, after the United stage. A little horn is going to show up. And so am I going to know when the Antichrist is coming? If I'm around, I'm going to see it because what am I going to look for? I'm going to look for the ten horn or the ten kingdom stage. When I see that, I know what? When this world has been divided by... Ten kingdoms. The world is devoured. In other words, the Roman Empire has total control of the world. Because as I said last week, we are in the divided stage. It divided completely when Constantinople fell in the 1400s. But before that, in the 400s, when it fell to the barbarian interests, and it moved up into France, and it moved up into uh, Russia, and then of course the Germans took over the French, and so it moved up into Germany, and you can follow Caesar into Kaiser and into Tsar as well on the Russian side of things. So that's where we are now. The east west stage of the Roman Empire. That is currently what's happening, and the Gentiles still have control of Jerusalem. Eventually, the Roman Empire will devour the whole world. We're going to go into a one world devour stage, and then out of that will come a ten kingdom stage, and then one of those kings will be, or there'll be another king that rises up, an eleventh king, he will kill three kings, and he will be the eighth horn and the eleventh horn simultaneously. I hope that all makes sense again. But the little horn is the Antichrist stage. Now these four Gentile empires are going to be crushed by what? The fifth empire. That's the Jewish empire, the stone made without hands empire. That's the return of Jesus Christ as God King revealed stage, if you will. Jesus Christ is God King Finally revealed. Okay. Now, we're almost done with this. And I hope it's making sense. If it doesn't, just come up after the service and I'll just explain it to you and bore you completely. Put you all to sleep. The beast is called out of the abyss in Revelation 13 by the dragon. And the beast is described as having ten horns and seven heads. Now, we already know about ten horns, don't we? Here's ten horns, ten toes, ten horns. We got that. That's in Daniel. Piece of cake. So we know when we see Revelation 13 and the beast, we have a beast in Daniel, we know that that fits with what we've got. What's new? We know about the ten horns. He's described as having ten horns and what? 
seven heads. Seven heads is new. That's different. Not Daniel 2, Daniel 7 doesn't talk about heads. Talks about horns. Talks about little horns. Talks about world devour. Talks about split in half. Talks about united. Talks about four generals and silver and gold. Doesn't talk about heads at all. Revelation talks about heads. <coughs> and so we enter a new arena. The rules of interpretation have got to be known, by the way, on this. Specifically in, Daniel, or in, in Revelation, the rule of Hebrew double reference. Because this is what happens. You really see it in Isaiah 7. You see it in Zechariah a lot as well. But I'll have, I'll have a verse. Verse 1, if you wish. Verse 1 will say something about the beast. And that will be about the Roman Empire. I'm using verse 1 not specifically as, a, as an example. If I'm reading a verse in Revelation about the beast, that could be what? That could either be the beast kingdom or it could be who? The Antichrist. I have to figure out which one it is. I could have verse 1 could be about the beast empire. Verse 2 could be about the Antichrist. That's called double reference. And the Hebrews write like that. John is a what? A Jew. He writes like that. That's how he writes. What he's been taught to do. And so it's very important to know the Hebrew double reference versus the principle of double fulfillment. And I'll get into that next week. No time to address it this week. But know that when you're, you're dealing with prophecy, especially when it's Jews that wrote it, and they didn't write everything, by the way. Nebuchadnezzar wrote some prophecy. But when it's Jews that are writing it, know that it can be separated and blended simultaneously. It's one total picture, but individual pieces. Is it talking about the Antichrist individually or the empire that the Antichrist puts into place? So anyway, Revelation adds the fact that the beast has seven heads. Is that talking about the Antichrist has seven heads? Or is it talking about the empire has seven heads? What's your decision? What's your decision? All in favor of the empire signify by not raising your hand, never raise your hand here. All of those who think it's about the Antichrist has seven physical characteristics that appear to be heads, and one of them is smitten. Raise your hand. Uh-oh, you're both right. That's Hebrew double reference. That makes sense? Because we're going to talk about the death and the resurrection of the Antichrist. Don't go by the clock. Sorry. Go by the pages. Really close. We're going to talk about the Antichrist... Um, being dead and resurrected, because one of the head references says that about him, and that is specific to the person. But remember, in 17, it says, five heads have fallen, one is, and one is, and the other is yet to come. And this is how we know which five have fallen. Again, through history, we're able to look at the Roman Empire. We see the Tarquin, the counselors, the plebeian dictator, the Republican, the oligarchy of ten, also called the Decemvirs. We see the triumvirate, and we can see that there is five heads before John is talking about the sixth head. And the sixth head has in it a united stage, cool, a two-division stage, cool, that's in Daniel. It has a world devour in it, great. It has a ten kingdom, ten horn stage. So the sixth head has all of that. What doesn't it have? It doesn't have the seventh head. The seventh head is the eleventh horn, eighth horn Antichrist stage. So when it talks about seven heads, it is breaking down the Roman Empire into seven heads. And that's what's going on there. 
Now, after the sixth head, as I said, which has the United States, the two division stage, the world devouring stage, or what you want to call the one world government stage and the ten kingdom, ten horn stage. After that comes the Antichrist stage. Where are we right now? We're right here. We're in the divided stage still. We haven't gotten to the one world government stage. Are we headed to the one world government stage? I asked that last week. Any evidence that people would like a one world government? Are we headed to a one world government stage? If we are here for the one world government stage, what should we be doing? Whoa. I mean, I listened to one commentator. You'll know who it is. He says, uh, buy bullets and food, baby. Because you can at least trade those or use them. But once we get to a one world government stage, then here comes the ten kingdom stage, and we're going to be gone somewhere really fast. I don't think we'll see, by the way, the one world government stage. I think the rapture is imminent. We are in the two divided stage. I think the rapture will come before the one world devour stage or the one world government stage. So how close are we if I'm right by my book? We're really close. Do I think it's 2012? We're hoping so. I mean, come on, look at us. Do we want you teenagers to get driver's licenses and have lives, Michael? No, we don't. We don't. We don't care about you at all. We're selfish old people. Get used to that. It's what we call health care. Okay? (laughs) We want you completely cheated. Now, by the way, we're all in sewage here, so realize that God has a better plan. But... After the seventh head of the fourth empire comes the stone empire, comes the rock, and that is the end of the age of the Gentiles. Okay. I say now we can start the January 24, 2010 sermon. That's all true. We can start the sermon now. We're not going to, but next week we're going to read John 12, 1 through 11. So you can read that on your own to be prepared. And we're going to ask the following questions. Why did Judas have the money box? He wanted that money box. Why did he have it? Does he need the money? No. Why has he got it? Why did Judas hang himself? Does he need to hang himself? Is it remorse? No. It's not remorse. It was a what? A strategy, a tactic, a maneuver. Why did Judas think this? How smart is he, by the way? He's got Satan inside of him. How powerful is he? He's got Satan inside of him. Why did Satan Judas say, I've got to hang myself? That's important. And why did he hang himself over the field of blood? Why not hang himself over the field of poppies or the field of dandelions or the field of crabgrass? But no, he fixed the field of blood. Why? Because it's a strategy. It's a brilliant move. Why is it brilliant? Why is it clever? Why is it evil? Why did Judas throw the silver? Why didn't he put the silver where? In the money box. He doesn't put the silver in the money box. He does what with it? Why does he count out? Why does he want 30 pieces? Is he controlling the Pharisee? He absolutely is. Duh, he's got Satan inside of him. Why not 40 pieces? Why not 20 pieces? He wants 30 pieces. Why? 
Zechariah 11 and, of course, other scriptures as well we'll get to. Again, why this field of blood? Where is Judas's own place? It says in Acts he went to his own place. Where is that? He's the only one that's ever said that he went to his own place. How does Judas of Simon fit in with the other Simeon prophecies that represent Israel? We'll have to do that. What is Judas doing at Gethsemane? Oh, you've heard me do that quite a few times. What does the silver atonement blood money represent? You've heard the phrase blood money? Silver is blood money. That's what it means in the Bible. It means atonement. What does it represent? What does blood money represent? Salvation. Why is Judas throwing salvation to the potter? Who gives salvation? The potter does. What's Judas doing with the salvation? Throwing it back. Why is he doing that? Does he know he's doing that? Duh. He's got Satan inside of him, right? Why this complaining over the anointing oil, the fragrance from the anointing oil? Because Christ is being anointed. The woman's wiping her hair with his feet with her hair, right? That's some long hair. She's doing that. How much is the anointing oil worth? A lot. Equivalent to $100,000 today. Which, that's enough to get you a cup of coffee sometime next month. I'm, I'm kidding about that. Why, why is she doing that? And Judas complains about it. Doesn't complain. The first recorded words of Judas are, are an accusation to Christ. What is he saying? Should give that money to who? The poor of the flock, which is Zechariah 11. So what's Jesus doing? If Jesus is using the oil on himself, what's he doing with it? If it should go to the poor, should sell it, give the money to the poor. Judas liked the poor. No, Judas is going to kill the poor. Come on. Read Zechariah 11. So what's he accusing Christ of? Sin. He's saying Christ has sin in him. It's a selfish act, isn't it? You should not be doing this. It's an act of selfishness. Would I expect that Judas, with Satan inside of him, would accuse Christ? Satan wasn't there yet at that time. But I, would I suspect that Judas would agree with Satan that sin is inside of God, that God is the author of sin? I'd expect that. What is meant by the poor always? What is meant by thief? What is Judas stealing? But He's called a thief. What's he stealing? Money? He doesn't care about money. What's he stealing? Better question. Who is he stealing it from? Why do the disciples, the apostles, follow Judas? Because they do. Judas is the leader of the apostles and the disciples. Read Matthew 26, 6 through 12, Mark 14, 3 through 9. Why did Judas empty the money box? Because he'd do that all the time. Why is Lazarus all of a sudden brought up again? And again, why does the Antichrist build an image? That's the sermon. And next week we'll answer all those questions. Whatever your view is on all of that... Just remember this. There's lots and lots of evidence to deal with. Lots of evidence. There's all kinds of stuff that have to be accounted for. And this is a mystery. This is like a murder mystery. You have to figure out what conclusion takes into account all of the evidence. If you throw out a piece of evidence, then you will come up with the wrong conclusion. So next week, that's what we're doing.
Our last song is Be to Our God.